welcome to The Sacred. My name is Elizabeth Oldfield, and this is a podcast about the deep values and principles of those who shape our public conversation. Every episode, I speak to someone who has some kind of public voice and platform, which, let's be honest, is increasing numbers of us, about what they hold sacred, by which I mean what are the driving principles they have at least tried to live their life by. I speak to people from all different tribes and perspectives, different political positions, different metaphysical beliefs. I've spoken to artists and actors and archbishops. I've spoken to politicians and poets and playwrights, journalists, a go-go, business leaders. And I absolutely love trying to listen for the person behind the position, for the person behind the public persona and adopting a posture of empathy and curiosity, no matter where they are coming from or how they may or may not look, sound, think or believe like me. In this episode, I had a conversation with Chris Packham. Chris is a naturalist, nature photographer, television presenter and activist best known for his many, many decades of presenting nature programs and natural history programs. Uh, The Really Wild Show is where he started, one of the favourite programs of my childhood, and he's now regularly seen on Spring Watch and Winter Watch on the BBC, but that's just the tip of the iceberg of his output. We spoke about his childhood growing up in suburban Southampton, and I had a little cry about what a hard time he had um, as a child who didn't yet know that he was autistic and who um, was obsessively interested in the natural world and animals and natural history. Uh, And he really speaks beautifully and vulnerably about the difficulties of that time. We spoke about the power of television to teach and engage and open up the world and um, and connect with people at a mass scale and uh, how his thinking around that has developed as he's worked in that over the years. We spoke about his autism. We spoke about love. We spoke about grief. We spoke, I think, about what it is to be a human being and it was a huge privilege. There's usually, uh, there is, as usual, some reflections from me at the end of the podcast, and I really hope you enjoy listening. Chris, I'm going to ask you a question that is deliberately not small talk or warming people up. Uh, I think we probably share um, a preference for that. Um, and I want, to, I want you to reflect for me on what is sacred to you. And you can take that wherever you like. Um, it doesn't necessarily mean anything religious. It's much more about what are the deep values or principles that you have tried to let guide your life? You can take it whatever direction you want. Well, I think they've changed quite radically, um, frankly, from the time that I was a child uh, up until this point. I mean, mean, at this point, it won't surprise you to know that I hold life sacred, and and that is all life. Hmm. And I am not quite Jainist, in an obsessive sense. But, you know, I am the sort of guy that will allow mosquitoes to bite them if they're not in a malarial zone. And I will dissuade them from biting me by using repellent or I will, you know, push them from my skin very gently. I I, I don't like extinguishing life unnecessarily. And therefore, I hate the idea of people killing things for pleasure. That's a Mm. complete anathema to me. Now, I know that we have to manage wildlife populations. I know that we have to 
cull animals in order to you know, generate a richer mosaic of habitats so to support a greater diversity of those animals, plants and fungi. So I'm not precious about life in that sense. But I, I do hold it as, uh, as sacred. You know, everything is there for a reason. Everything wants to live. Nothing wants to die at all. Um, and so preserving that life is really important. But then I could go back to a time when I was a child and I unfortunately, you know, extinguished lots of lives. I did put ladybirds into matchboxes and I did forget about them for several days and I did then open them and they'd been dried and desiccated. There were newts that shriveled behind, you know, the gas fire. There was a, a snake which disappeared beneath the floorboards and probably never came out. And when I was keeping, you know, predatory animals that required food, I would get that food for them and that meant killing other animals to feed them properly. Um, so that's, that's changed. And I, and I think the other thing that I, I probably the most consistent sacred values that I've held were those obviously um, implanted, if not instilled, by my parents. And that is uh, honesty and truth. And I think that they became increasingly compatible with my scientific outlook. I mean, for me, science is the art of understanding truth and beauty. Um, and truth is an, you know, an, an integral part of that. Science is about uncovering the truth as we can and will know it at this point in time. That doesn't mean that it's not flexible, uh, there were scientific truths which are no longer true. Hmm. Um, but so, I, I, and I think that honesty is part of, of that as well. Um, I think, again, because of my neurodiversity, um, and I say this because I've asked other neurodiverse people and we share a commonality, we have an aggravated sense of injustice. We don't like people getting away with things and essentially, therefore, we don't like lies. And I, I struggle a lot, and I always have done, when people lie to me. I find that extremely difficult to deal with. So as a consequence of that, I'm prone to telling the truth myself, <laughs> which mm. gets me into all sorts of trouble because, you know, people sometimes don't want to hear the frank, stark truth as I see it. Mm. So I suppose, again, as a child, my, my mother called me the least tactful boy in the world. Um, these days, I moderate my truth-telling, obviously, to manage myself in social situations and professional situations. So I don't, I don't unnecessarily tell people that the absolute truth as I see it. But um, no, I, I suppose those are the, uh, are the core sacred values that remain. Honesty, mm -hmm. truth, and, and you know, the, the understanding the, you know, the, 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 deep, the, the very deep and important sacred nature of, of life. Yes. I think one of the, it's, sometimes it's hard for us to know what's sacred to us, right? Well, our, our society doesn't encourage us to spend a lot of time in this deep reflection. We're often just spending a time sort of jumping hoops and busyness and um, responding to stimuli, but that we often, these things often sort of are forced up into our consciousness at real decision points, at crunch points, at moments of moral profundity, whether we have to decide and we have to decide whether to be loyal to them, those principles or not, or whether to compromise. Can you think of times in your life where it's felt like, oh, yes, I, I have to follow this, these things that are sacred to me, or, or, or maybe well, you haven't been able to, but you had that wrestle? I, I, I don't know. I mean, I think that I, I'm naturally quite an introspective person. I've always, you know, been thinking, again, from the time that I was a child, about, you know, who I am, where I am, mm. what I am. 
and and to to some extent, you know, where I've come from, what has made me you mm. know, that person, and certainly throughout my teenage years, which were quite solitary at times, you know, that introspection uh, and you know, and I'd like to call it deeper thinking, but I don't mean that in an intellectual sense, mm. contemplative sense rather than an intellectual sense. Um, was a significant part of it. And I remember having, you know, by the time I was in my late teens, having mm. quite, you know, long conversations with my sister who shared that commonality. And, and we would, you know, you know, sit there on the edge of her bed, back at my parents, you know, contemplating who we were um, and, and, and why, you know, I was different and, and so on and so forth for quite a long mm. period of time. And maybe it was struggling to understand that difference, which... Has has you know has always kept that at the forefront of, of, of my mind. So as a consequence, I'm, I'm probably less regularly surprised by having to deal with aspects of who I am and how I manifest myself because I'm mean, kind of think I've already been thinking about that. So in terms of wrestling with those things, um, probably not as much. Now, having said that, um, during my forties, I had a, a quite a significant mental health crisis and 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 had three years of therapy. Um, and of course, that did open some cupboards, which I'd previously chosen to, to keep quite tightly closed. Um, so I can't say that I'm, you know, squeaky clean when it comes to fully understanding myself. But in the aftermath mm-hmm. of that therapy, I definitely, if I didn't know myself better. I knew how to look after myself better, that was for sure. <laughs> I'm really glad to hear that. I want to... Um hear a little bit more about your childhood, if that's okay. You've given us some little vignettes of the boy that you were, but I'm particularly interested in any sort of formative ideas that were in the air. They're usually not explicit, usually implicit, but religious or political or philosophical kind of, what were you receiving in your childhood from those around you? Okay, so let's deal with them in order. So religious to start with. So my father was a staunch atheist. Uh, Mm -hmm. My mother really, you know, didn't have an interest in religion, but they were both very keen on taking us to monuments. So we would spend quite a lot of time in old churches, obviously cathedrals and so on and so forth, Mm. temples, all of those sorts of things. So, you know, I I think they realised that religion was an integral part of culture. And in order to understand that culture, an easy route in um, mm. was was through those sort of portals, basically. Mm. Um, and, and I continue to use that to this day. You know, I, 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 there's nothing more I, I, I love more than going somewhere new and going into an old church, reading the inscriptions, sitting down for an hour, smelling it, soaking it up, listening to the sounds. There were some very, very beautiful old churches um, in the area where I lived in France. And I would often mm. drive out to them and I, okay, I'd mince around in the graveyard looking at wildlife for five minutes. But then I would just go and sit in there to soak up the ambiance of that and, and try to imagine all the people that had been there, the trials and tribulations of their lives and the things that had shaped their lives. So again, there was a bit of history involved in that. So I think, you know, the long-standing edifice, I mean, there was a ch- church around the corner from me that was founded in Saxon times, Norman, um, you know, Edward III, and, and, and I, I love being able to touch the fabric of all of that history and the constancy of religion throughout that period of time is what has kept those buildings there and kept mm. that running. Now, having said that about my parents and their, uh, my father's atheism, etc., um, 
uh, we were brought up with very strict Christian values. So in terms of like, you know, the fundamentals of essentially how to behave and how to be a proper person, a right person, were undoubtedly founded on, you know, mm. on, on Christian values. There was no doubt about that at all. And then in later life, my, my mother became a very religious person. And my father joined in with everything. He, he would go to the church, he would support her with all of the things that he did. And, and so I guess he, he kind of moderated completely there. But no, so we were constantly exposed to religion. We were taught about it. It's just that my parents were not believers, you know, when I, when I was a child. Politics. Minute, I'm sorry to interrupt. I want to come back, but I'm just really interested in what do you think, what, what happened with your mum? What made her change? Uh, so my mother had quite a catastrophic childhood. Um, she was in an Anderson shelter in the Second World War that took a direct hit and it took out half of her family. And we, I can't even imagine the horror of, of that. And I, I think that and a number of other uh, traumas left a mark. And, and my mother was very afraid of death. And when she reached a point in her life that her relatives and friends gradually and sadly began to die she needed to reach out and find some security, not necessarily security in religion and the church, but in that community that was brought mm. together around that faith. And that community and its focused faith became a very important part of her life. And and again, as I say, it was a pleasure to watch my father embracing that. And I, obviously, we all embraced it. But my my dad had had such fervent views that to to, to watch them, you know, moderate and disseminate uh, because of the you know his understanding of what my mother required at that point in her life was uh, was was touching and yeah joyous in in many ways. I remember going to a, a you know my dad would go to enormous you know, effort to support my mother when it came to sort of church bazaars, church fairs, any of the events, you know, and he would get fully immersed in the whole thing. And I remember on one occasion, it was a lovely sunny afternoon, and we were at the church fete and um, talking to everyone. And um, and I looked over and my mum and dad were together running some sort of quiz thing that they were doing. And, uh, and my sister and I just looked at one another and just sort of nodded and sort of thought, <laughs> if only he'd, you know, seen himself, yeah. uh, you know, when he was ranting, uh, uh, you know, uh, as he had been like 40 years earlier. You know. It's incredibly romantic. It was romantic. And my parents were not romantic people. I mean, not openly romantic. Um, there was quite a lot of antagonism uh, between them. They were two intelligent uh, working class people that had been denied the opportunity to further their education due to the Second World War and, and their lack of money and their class, basically. Um, and so they were struggling th with that throughout their lives. You know, they were always trying to better themselves. My mother was a faddist. So one moment she'd be learning how to play the harp, the next minute she'd be teaching herself Russian. Um, and, 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 and my father would have to consume at least four books a week, most of them textbooks, most of them about military history or history. Um, so for him, it was the acquisition of knowledge which gave him context that was very, very important. So, I, you know, uh, they were desperate for me and, uh, and my sister to progress with our academic education. They weren't pushy in that sense. They certainly weren't trying to live their lives through ours, but... Um, you know, they they were they were very keen if they could uh, to get us, you know, beyond you know secondary school. 
and they succeeded. Mm. We, 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 both of us went to, went on to study at university and, and, and you know, and, and they were very supportive of, of that throughout. I mean, but a, a key part of the relationship, the relationship I had with my parents was, I'm painting quite a rosy picture here. There were, there were, there were extreme difficulties, particularly between my mother and myself, but they were always invested in our education. That was mm. of preeminent importance. And I'm very grateful for that. Obviously, I, 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 the greatest joy of my life is learning. I continue to learn and I love it. It's the best bit. Yeah. And tell me about kind of how that started. And I guess particularly around this um, fascination with the natural world. What's your very first memory of turning that powerful attention and being drawn in by that fascination? Uh, well, my parents tell me, before I can remember, my memory starts at, before I went to school, I started when I was five. So probably from about four and a half onwards, I've got scattered memories from five onwards, from starting school onwards, I, I can remember things quite clearly. Uh, and it was about ladybirds and, and tadpoles and those very simple um, everyday organisms, well, they were then, um, that, that lived in our tiny garden in suburban Southampton. And I, I loved them because of their, their beauty. They were mm. symmetrical. They were perfect. They didn't limp. Um, Everyone looked at like it had come out of a beautiful mould. They were just, I just loved them. And I loved the diversity of their form. I loved the way that they felt, you know, the mm. sticky, the stickiness of a slug, the dryness of a, a beetle, you know, tickling your palm as you tried not to crush it in your, you know, having caught it and trying to get it into a jam jar. I mean, it was, it was all, it was everything. It was, you know, I would try to exercise all of my senses to take in as much of that natural world as possible. I, you know, I necessarily immersed myself in it. And I wasn't, a, 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 you know, they say focused interest now to try and, you know, sort of, I don't know what, sanitize it. But I was an obsessionist uh, as a child. You know, I'd get so into one thing and it would only be about tadpoles. There was no point in having a conversation about, I don't know, lizards or otters or bats. If I was into tadpoles, it was just tadpoles. So um, that was quite challenging for my parents on that account, obviously. But, you know, and it would ricochet from one thing to another. But I mean, certainly, I mean, I was into the space race in the 60s, bearing in mind I was born in 61. So that was, you know, the Apollo program was running at full tilt. And I was into all of that. But my, my focused interest was always natural history at that point in my life. And I gather it made things quite difficult socially at school. Well, the obsessional nature of it made things I mean I, I you know I was only really interested in that there were other aspects of the neurodiversity which with the benefit of hindsight certainly made life tricky at school um I'm a very task focused person so I before we started to, to speak I was I, I have a task that I need to complete today but I didn't start it um, because I knew that we were, we were going to be speaking, I, it would have been uncomfortable for me to have started it and then stopped to come and do this. I'd have been itching at this point to go and get, get on with it. So when the bell went for the end of the lesson, it didn't necessarily work for me. If I hadn't finished the task I'd been set, then I couldn't really understand why I'd have to go and start another one somewhere else. Um, so there were many things that, that caused sort of day-to-day -day difficulties in, in, in school, the regularity of the time, certain lessons which I just didn't want to engage with, I had no interest in whatsoever. So if I was interested in something, I would immerse myself completely. If I wasn't, then I wouldn't turn up. So it was, that again, presented difficulties. So yeah, it was, but it was the 1960s. No one knew what was going on. I didn't know what was going on. I don't, obviously, I've no recriminations to my parents or any of the teachers or anyone. It, it was it was an unknown uh, phenomenon. 
and, and luckily I managed to bruise through it. Did they know that you were bullied and excluded and really struggling? Yeah, but they came from that generation. Look, my mum had had a bomb on the shelter. My dad was, <laughs> his parents had said he, 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 she was evacuated after that um, out of the city, but my father had to stay and his house was bombed as well. I mean, they had a mm. tough time. You know, I mean, mental health was not something that was ever discussed at home. Physical health, I mean, I did needed a, a leg amputated at the, not below the knee, but at the hip to even get half a day off of school. You know, so <laughs> if anything like that happened, you know, it was, I, I hate to say it, it, it was that generation that said, just pull yourself together and get on with it. Mm-hmm. And, and so sympathy about physical injuries, you know, illness and those sorts of things was in pretty short supply. You know, those things were encumbrances to be overcome as rapidly as possible. Um, mm-hmm. and, and didn't, I mean, I'm not saying they didn't nurse me if I cut myself. Of course they did. But you know, as soon as the plaster was on, get back mm. to doing what you were doing before. You know, that was their attitude. And I think that was a legacy of their own upbringing, no, no doubt about it. Yeah. I'd love to hear um, about a moment that you've spoken of and written of very beautifully as as meaningful, but I'm aware it might be painful. So, you know, t- tell it as feels appropriate for you today. But I'd love to hear about the falcon that you you nursed and, and that moment in your childhood and adolescence. Um, well, it was, uh, uh, obviously in my early adolescence, I was obsessed with kestrels at that time. Nothing else meant Forget anything me. in the entire history of, no, no, kestrels are a falcon. They remember the falcon Ido family. Yeah. So they are small falcons. Um, of course I knew that. Yeah, that's right. Um, uh, <laughs> so I was utterly obsessed with them. They were the be all and end all of my universe. I had this kestrel. I was totally devoted to it. I don't remember anything else that happened in my life for that six months, everything was about that one organism. and How, the, You just said, I had this. How did you get it? I, I took it from a nest because we'd gone through a process of applying for a license. At that point, um, you could apply for a home office license, but working class oiks from Southampton didn't get them. And, and, and again, you know, I, I'd already <laughs> developed a healthy mistrust or lack of respect for any sort of authority. So, you know, if people said no... That didn't mean no as far as I was concerned, you know, and, and that was, again, manifesting as trouble at school because I sometimes wouldn't do it. Well, sometimes I wouldn't do as I was told. Um, anyway, so my parents were a bit uh, upset about the fact that I'd essentially broken the law. But anyway, they forgave me because, well, they, they, there was no way they were going to get take that bird away from me. There was no question of that. So anyway, I fell in love with the bird. It became the epicenter of everything. Um, I just, it was like it was the nucleus and I was the electrons that just buzzed around it with an intensity and a fury, the likes of which were in, incomprehensible. The whole thing was, as I say, utterly breathless. And and it became ill with a disease which could now be very easily treated, but at the time uh, couldn't, and, and it died. Um, and with the... <laughs> Again, with the benefit of hindsight, I mean, I don't, I didn't know what was going on. I was always ha- already having trouble because of the neurodiversity. Then I was having trouble because of the the trauma of losing the bird. I, I couldn't speak. Um, you know, I, I couldn't make words come out. My parents had this thing about oh, going. You know, I had to carry on going to school, so I went to school. I couldn't speak. I got bullied even more because I couldn't, you know, communicate to anyone. I went on for I don't know a couple of weeks. Um, and the uh, the aftermath was all a bit of a blur as well. I mean, it was just utterly traumatic. And, and it, obviously, 
had a profound impact on, on, on my life. Uh, and the fact that it coincided with that whole separate social separation between myself and my peers, which was happening far more rapidly at that point, it, it, it had really accelerated. So the exclusion and the bullying was like, was really ramping up. And it occurred at that point. So it just fed and, and fueled, uh, uh, you know, and what was a, essentially enormous personal turmoil. Lucky to get through it, frankly. I, I was very lucky to get through all of that. Yeah, sorry. That's all right. I mean, I think that I, I, I do talk about it because I, I something good has to come from it, you know, and if I, if I can speak about it and, and help other young people, particularly neurodiverse uh, young people who may find themselves in a similar position, sat in their bedroom, there's no tunnel, let alone light at the end of any tunnel. But if I can somehow help them to realise that, you know, there is a way, there is a path forward, um, you've just got to hang on and and find it. Then, then, then it serves a, a real purpose. I, I, I hate the idea of anyone else having to go through so much solitary, disconnected, abject pain. Basically, yeah. One of the places, or one of the ways you found to process or hold or release some of that pain was when you were you connected with punk culture. I, I feel like for a lot of people, it's sort of angry singers with mohawks is, is the only kind of mental filing. <laughs> Could you say a bit more? Because I think there's a more kind of philosophical, profound posture behind it that you found Yeah, helpful. I mean, the, the, there was the fashion and the, obviously there was the music and they were unified around uh, base, uh, an attitude. And it was the attitude, I think, that, I mean, the attitude persists in me and, and others from, from that generation um and so that was clearly what was at the core of it um it was about do it yourself it was about not having any expectations for anyone to help you do anything if you didn't do it yourself um and and it was also it was about rebellion it was about questioning authority not disrespecting it but questioning it if you if if if, if there was a reason to do something the reason need to be understood and explained it, it was about not just standing in line and doing it, but without wondering, you know, without even wondering why. And there was an enormous determination and it was fueled by a lot of anger. We're talking about mid-70s here. And I think there are fair contrasts with some aspects of our, our, uh, the contemporary period. There was very high unemployment. There were, I went to a huge comprehensive. I had a five-minute careers interview, which ended with, if you don't get to, you, you know, on, you know your, to go to sixth form, you could think about joining the army the Air Force or the Navy, that's, that's what it was like, you know. So there, there, there wasn't a lot of sort of prospects in, in material terms uh, on the horizon. And that generation was, was, you know, that part of that generation was going to go and say, no, Jim, I'm going to make my own prospects, you know, and, and that's what we did. Um, so we made our own fashion. And part of that, I think the anger, and certainly what appealed to me was, you know, I, I was coming to terms with the fact that I was different. I didn't know why. I didn't understand anything about that. I found it almost impossible to articulate it because I didn't understand it and I was young. Um, but what I did, what the punk thing allowed me to do was identify physically as being different from everyone else. Because I did have the, you know, black spiky hair, the studded leather jacket and, the, you know, the, the, the blue 
uh, brothel creepers. And, and so I... Uh, pardon? Then, pardon? Yeah, the, the brothel creepers, the 1950s, um, you know, crepe-sold shoes. And, you brothel know, uh, creepers, right. I'm gonna, it's a whole new world of, of uh, fashion well, that, terms. That's what they called them, yeah. Um, I, the, um, but anyway, look, the point is that standing on the street, all of a sudden, I, I looked different. And I felt different. So it was a way of manifesting that. And also that worked as quite a good separating mechanism because people were intimidated by that very confrontational fashion. And so they mm. would avoid you. They'd either avoid mm. you or beat you up. Um, and I got was getting used to getting beaten up anyway. So, um, it, it, you know, so for me, it was in, incredibly important. And, you know, and some of the, you know, the ethos, the, the you know, the lyrics, the poetry, the art that came with it, um, were hugely instrumental in in shaping, you know, mm. what I became and who I am. Mm. I mean, I could reach over. Look, just behind me on the wall there, there's um, yeah. a framed lyrics uh, page, uh, A4, written by uh, a lady called Pauline Murray. She was the lead singer of a band called Penetration. They wrote a song called Shout Above the Noise. And to me, that, that those lyrics encapsulated everything I felt at the time and what I continue to feel today. Um, mm. and, and that will be going in the in the box with me. I mean, that is just, that is the ultimate treasure. I mean, she wrote it out and signed it for me. I, I've met her a few times. And, um, but yeah, it's, st- it's still there. It's on, it's, it's on the wall. It's part and parcel of my life and who I am. And I'm, I, I'm, I'm very pleased about that, you know. Mm. It's almost making me think of, and I don't mean this in, obviously I mean in a sort of positive way, but these things that almost become forms of prayers or scriptures to us, songs or poems or films that we tell over and over to ourselves as part yeah. of how we make ourselves and our identity. It's my mantra. Um, it is a mantra and I will repeat mm. it and, 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 and I will in, you know, I'll ingest it. I'll play it loud in the car, the song, and I'll sing along. Obviously, I know every word. Um, and, you know, and, and it is about you know, overcoming difficulty at all costs, mm. never mm. giving up. That is the key thing, never giving up. Never allow, you know, anyone to be in a position where they can, you know, uh, make you stop. Yeah. You went to university, I studied biology, I think, at Southampton. Yeah. And it sounds like found a bit more peace there and a bit more space to get involved and love the studying. I'm really intrigued by why you didn't just pursue an academic career and, and instead... Did this move into television? Well, yes, there we are. Um, so I had always intended to do that from about 13 onwards. I'd, I'd imagined myself in an ivory tower studying birds for the rest of my life until I became bearded and old and, and writing papers. Um, and I loved learning. I loved science. I, again, my management technique at university was unusual. I didn't socialise. I went to my, obviously, hometown university Um I'd say 20 pence, please, twice a, twice a day to the bus conductor and I wouldn't speak to anyone else. I sat at the front. I missed one lecture in three years because I was extremely ill. Um, I, I, I didn't tell my dad he'd been cross about it. Uh, no, I'm joking. Uh, but the, uh, and so I loved all the learning. I struggled with the other aspects of, of, of being in, in a social space with lots of other young people going through enormous you know, changes in their lives due to that time of life. Um, and yeah, and I, and I got to the point where I'd, I, I wrote a PhD uh, proposal, had it accepted, um, and I was going to stay on at Southampton and, and, and do that. And, um, and then a few, a few things happened that I felt were wrong and, mm. and, and I couldn't control them. And, and again, being like not being able to control things is, is one of the life's problems. Um, 
so I dropped out and I, I just sort of thought, I, 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 I can't, I can't do this. You know, I, I, the, the playing field wasn't equal and I didn't want to, to be batting on a losing wicket from day one. So I, I had to bail out and I didn't know what I was going to do. I was virtually unemployable. I had ridiculous colored hair, terrible fashion sense. Um, I was obsessed, <laughs> obsessed with the natural world. I hadn't read any decent literature. I just read scientific papers from the age of 13. You know, I, I, I I'd not read, I mean, I'd read George Orwell and Brave New World and things before I really got heavily into the science, but, but I'd pretty much stopped then. And um, so that I, I was quite, uh, you know, opportunities were, were quite narrow. And by simply by accident, I mean, I literally met a guy at a bus stop and um, got talking. In fact, we had an argument. And then um, I ended up working for him and that's how I, I drifted into into television. It wasn't a plan in any way, shape or form. I didn't watch much TV as a kid. I liked Thunderbirds and Captain Scarlet. Um, I loved documentaries, uh, you know, Horizon, Chronicle, uh, Ascent of Man, Vanoski. I loved all those sorts of things, but, you know, I wasn't really massively into TV as a, as a form of educational entertainment. I love that guy that first encounter with you was an argument. He thought, I want to hire this guy. I like his spirit. Yeah, I met him for a second time. So we had an argument on one occasion, and then uh, and then I saw I met him again in virtually the same place. He he lived near there, and so did I. And we were crossing a bridge, and he was coming towards me. I thought, oh no, it's that guy I had a row with, and um, and he was thinking the same. We had another row on the bridge, <laughs> and in the aftermath of that, he offered me a job. So there you go. He was like me. He was quite a confrontational person, and um, yeah. but in a creative way, you know. It, yeah. it, 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 and I am the sort of person that can argue with people and I never bear a grudge, you know. I just think you share a difference of opinion and you move on, you know. And yeah. and, and, and there were there were people in my life who who I disagree with, you know, enormously over some topics. But that doesn't mean yeah. I need to separate them or hold it against them. As long as we understand yeah. where we come from, we can accept it. And that's yeah, part, yeah. part of the way it is. Amen. That's an important thing we need to hold fast to. Um, so you have had one of the... Not the longest. There are people who've been working for more decades than you, but a very, very um, established, eminent, eminent presenting career. And I am always fascinated by our kind of common life and our public conversations and how people think about what they do, whether whether they sort of think of their vocation and what is it they're trying to do. And I'd love you. I'd love to hear what you think really good television can do for our common life? When you, when you finish a series or something and you think, yes, I did a good job there, I did something good in the world, what is it that has happened? I haven't got to that point yet, but I mean, I'm working towards it. I, I see other good that has come from it. And I mean, I think one you know, accessible and obvious case would be uh, you know, Sir David Attenborough. Now, Sir David has made a, a raft of programmes over a number of decades, moving through all sorts of Television technologies from black and white to 3D and HD and every other D. Uh, and he's communicated with a global audience to generate an enormous affinity for the natural world at a time when that natural world has been plunged into crisis. Mm. And if people didn't love it, if they hadn't connected with it, if they hadn't listened to his stories and been fascinated by his, you know, tales of science, um, they, they, they wouldn't be interested in looking after mm. it. So his legacy is profound. And mm. I think that, you know, Carl Sagan, I mean, I remember, you know, watching Carl Sagan as a kid and then in, in the 70s, you know, his capacity to communicate um, mm. beautifully, 
not just the science, but the romance as well. Mm. I mean, Carl Sagan's Little Blue Dot, right, mm. is still one of the most, I mean, profoundly, you know, brilliant science. When you think of the, you know, when that Voyager spaceship was launched, it was probably made out of Meccano, you know. Yeah. Um, but also the romance. And I think that that's what David, you know, and his storytelling ha- has always added to the equation. You know, it's not cold, hard facts. It's the, you know, it's, it's the stories and we relate to those stories and he's integrated them into our lives and his legacy is, is extremely sig- significant. And I yeah. think obviously I have an interest in the natural world, so I'm going to gravitate, and, and science, so I'm going to gravitate more to those presenters. But there were plenty of others that I can think about who were great communicators. Alan Wicker, again, I remember watching as a child, and he, he, he could go from a, you know, a, a homeless beggar to, to the Pope or, or you know, fascist despot and, and mm. sit down and open a conversation with them and draw something out of them that you would want to know. And I mean, again, a skill as an interviewer was was remarkable. Mm. So I think, though, mm. you know, television does have that capacity. Um, it's becoming more challenging, obviously, because mm. we're in an age of changing media. And I think yeah. that you know we're into fast media now. The social media platforms are being used to communicate for good and ill. Um, mm. You know, we struggle, of course, a lot with misinformation in those unregulated platforms. Whereas, obviously. You know, everything we do on the BBC is checked and fact-checked and double-checked and then we check it again. Um, And and we're very diligent about that. But that due diligence isn't there in some of those other platforms. So we're going through that period of change. Um, But I still think that it's a a long... You can can have a long-form narrative. You can tell, you know, stories through a shot, a sequence, a a programme or a series. And, Mm. and, And that means that people can still walk away having watched and listened to something and and it it has the capacity to transform their lives in many ways they can be better educated they can be stimulated um i mean like every now and again you see something makes you want to shout it can be quite a euphoric reaction to things that you Mm. see so i you know it's still there Uh, from a personal point of view i I, I'm, i'm not a directly ambitious person you know if you said to me what what would i want to be doing in I was going to say five years, but that would be laughably too long. Even a, a year's time, I wouldn't have an answer for you. I mean, there were a couple mm. of programs that we're interested in making now, but, you know, I, I'm downstairs converting my garage into a studio so I could make more sculpture. I only started doing that this time last year, exactly a year ago. Um, so things come and go. I just need to be productive. I need to be, you know, making sure that I can exercise my small voice for good when it comes mm. to environmental and, and, you know, wildlife, animal welfare concerns. I've got to use that. It's my duty. Um, and, and I'll continue to do so for as, as long as I can. And, and that's it. But I don't, I, don't, I, I don't like generating expectations. And again, I think that comes, that's a legacy of childhood and the teenage time when I would generate expectations and they would fail and it hurt too much. So I don't do that any longer. I don't generate expectations of people or uh, particularly myself. Mm. I I know I'll fail myself and I don't want to have to live with the failure. Forgive me if this is too prying. I am very comfortable with people just having a firm boundary, but I can't help but ask how... So my language for it would be would be spiritual language, but 
how do you tend to those well, forgive me, this isn't very coherent, but what you're, what you're saying is making me think about a lot of practices in different traditions around how you, how you hold that, how you hold our own fragility and our fallibility without just shutting down and hardening, uh, how, you, how you surrender, how you find a place of acceptance. You know, these, these, these kind of, my friend Casper calls them spiritual technologies, but you know, that they show up in the recovery movement, they show up in, in, in therapy. My shorthand would be, what have you found that helps you tend to your soul as you learn about yourself and you learn about the world and, and what helps you, you live well? But you can completely reject the spiritual language if that feels no, like an no, imposition. No, I, I, I like the spiritual language. Um, I, I think, firstly, I don't need a solution. I, I, you know, I don't, I don't, expect not to have a troubled soul you know i don't need to be working to a point where i'm i'm comfortable or content i think that i i if anything i fear comfort and contentment i think they i fear them because they might introduce complacency and laziness so i like struggling you know and and i like struggling you know i make trouble and i know that trouble is going to make be a struggle. I, I took on another court case yesterday against a, a, a significant body who were going to really push back and make my life difficult and generate an enormous amount of animosity and enormous amount of work, but it's the right thing to do. So I know at this point that that's going to make life more difficult, but I don't, I don't fear that. I, I suppose I'm not looking for a conclusion. Um, mm. And I'm certainly not looking for I mean, I'm, I need some respite and solace, and, and I get that on a superficial day-to-day way with, you know, walking my dogs in the woods. You know, it's good for my mental health. I, I, you know, I just, I've been there this morning. I've been out. I've had a sniff about. So have they. We enjoy each other's company. We're on our own. I always like to walk on, on my own. So I've been out for an hour and a half on my own in the woods. Can't think of anything finer, to be honest with you. That's great. Um, but when I get back... I'm, I just, I'm quite happy to jump straight back into the frying pan or the cauldron. So I, I don't know. I think that I'm not on that sort of journey where I, I, I see an end point. And also, mm. I, I don't expect, I don't expect to be able to reach that point of like, as you say, um, soulful rest. Yeah. Yeah, and it makes it makes a lot of sense of your, and I'm I'm really mean this as a compliment, like scrappy do energy that you've had this this kind of like from the punk, from the campaigning, from the conversations about climate, um, from arguing with a guy at bus stop and on a bridge, you know that 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 feels normal and livable to you in a way that it might not for people who have lower tolerance for conflict or are trying to find a sort of inner tranquility. Do you, you've sometimes talked about um, your, the, and you've used this phrase, forgive me if it's the wrong language, but your form of autism um, being maybe related to this and, and seeing that, that, um, and you've talked about Greta Thunberg and other, when did you come to sort of be, be able to connect the dots with those things? This, this, kind of justice-seeking activist energy in you and the fact that you're autistic? Uh, so I think I became aware of the existence of autism at some point in the early 90s, or mid-90s, early to mid-90s. I, I had um, partners who were 
nurses uh, or in the medical profession. And one of them was on part of a course and, um, and she was learning about autism and she came home and she said, well, this is a bit like you, isn't it? And you do this and you say that and you've done that. And, and then I found a letter years ago that I'd written to her but not posted um, and it was a list of, of traits which matched the criteria which she was studying. In, in, in. And so I, but I didn't really do much with it. I, I you know, I, I'd already come up with a sort of a crude management plan that allowed me to blunder through life and, you know, well, I blundered through those relationships and, and destroyed most of them. But, but I was still, you know, it was, it was a roller coaster, but it was generally moving in a direction not necessarily the right direction, but it was moving. It wasn't, it hadn't ground to a standstill in a siding somewhere. And so I suppose the energy just kept me going. And I, I'd learned, you know, a few things that I should and shouldn't do um, to, to get me through my professional life and to some extent my sort of personal social life. But then I, got, I didn't get the diagnosis until after that period of therapy. And that was part of the conclusion, really. And at the time, I didn't think it was very valuable because I'd kind of already figured it out and I was 40-something, you know. Mm. Um, but with the benefit of, again, with the benefit of hindsight, which is a phrase I've used three times, uh, it, the, um, it, it, was, it was useful and I think it's given me more confidence to, to, to actually outwardly acknowledge who I am. Um, mm. People that I only know a couple of people that I've known since I've had the diagnosis in the sense that I still speak to them and see them. Um, mm. And to sort of move through those things quite quickly, but they um, they they say to me, "No, you've changed." You know, you, you, you'll tell people now. You'll ask them directly to do things that will be of uh, a benefit to you and them, and it will make your life more compatible and more productive and and more efficient. Whereas in the past, you would have tried to have coaxed those things and tried to mm-hmm. make them happen, sometimes clumsily, and they would have failed, and then things would have gone awry whereas mm. now I just put the cards straight on the table so I think that that's that's empowering and that's been mm. been useful but um in terms of a, a, acquainting that to the outward attitude um I think I think there is a, a, a definitely a, a, a relationship between the two and I think I, I see that because I I do meet other people who are who have my as you say it form of autism um and, and and we're like that. We're fighters, and we are uh, affronted by injustice, and we feel a compunction to tell the truth as we see it, and we won't back down, and we're not terribly good at compromising that truth, um, and so we're fighters because you have to fight if you're not going to compromise. Um, and Greta is 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 one, and there are a couple of other people I know, probably better not name, but and and they're very, uh, we're all very similar in that regard, you know. Mm. I live in a very, very tiny intentional community. Um, and one of the questions we ask each other is, how can I love you well? Which is a shorthand for, tell me what you need. Tell me how you need me to communicate or tell me how I can help in this moment. It's really different for other people. And I think we tend to assume that other people want what we want when they often don't. And I obviously, we've never met in person and it would be very very presumptuous of me to say, Chris Packham, tell me how I can love you well. But for listeners who are coming to awareness of autism and neurodivergence, just want to be better citizens, people, part of a common community, what, what, what would you want them to know? What, what helps you? Because 
different pe- autistic people need different things, but mm. there are some commonalities. Mm. But I think it's maybe just autistic people, but I think it's a great question um, because I think the way that we understand uh, manifest and and manage love is pretty fundamental to who we are, really. Because surely love has to has to you know has to be centered around the really core values in our life. And, and I think the, the, the critical thing, and this is perhaps a, a neurodiverse thing, is that there's not a lot of gray in my life. I don't think there's any gray at all. It's black or white. I mean, I either love you or, no, I don't say hate any longer because I think hate's a, a really unpleasant emotion. It takes enormous amounts of energy. It's enormously destructive. I don't hate people anymore, but I will dislike things. I hardly often, I don't very often dislike individual people, but I might dislike things that they do. I said hate again at the beginning of this when we first started uh, speaking, and, uh, and I'm very conscious of that, and I wish I hadn't, because I, uh, it's not an emotion that I, that I manifest. But love is, and, and I think therefore, you know, for me, unfortunately, there's no 99.999, there is only 100%. So if I love something or someone, I give them everything, absolutely everything, total commitment. And I try to obviously, you know, I'm task-centric. So I will break down and analyze what I think their requirements are, and I will try to satisfy them 100%, not 99.9. I can't have a lazy day. So that can be when I was younger, and, and that was a clumsy process, that would be oppressive. That could be stifling for, for people. Mm. Because I, I, it may not manufacture itself in an obsessive sense. You know, it wasn't swamping, it wasn't all over people or, or anything like that, you know. But but that sort of, I don't know, precision dedication mm. was probably quite intimidating to, 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 to some people. And I think mm. that, you know, what, what you get is a total co- commitment. And now the, 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 this goes back to the kestrel. I, I gave all of that to that bird and the relationship failed. It died. I've given all of that to my dogs. They've died, um, one catastrophically the others of old age. I've given it to, you know, other relationships with people and those relationships have failed. So that's always come at a terrible cost because um, it's not 99.9. There's nothing left. When it, when it goes, everything is gone. You haven't, uh, there's nothing been retained. There's nothing left there to hang on to. There's not a little bit to give something or someone else. It's, it's all just gone. And that's why I think Again, and I, I'm, 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 that probably is uh, closely related to the neurodiversity. Mm. But in terms of mental health, life management, you know, that's why catastrophic roller coaster is mm. <laughs> pretty much defined by those sorts of events. And again, if I look at the map of my life on a on a chart, you know, most of the catastrophes are centered around the loss of my companion animals. No, no, firstly, the poodle and then, uh, sorry, the, the kestrel and then, and then my dogs, poodles. Mm. Because I've been ill-equipped to be able to deal with that immediate, total loss of love mm. and with nowhere for it to go. You know, the, the, the vehicle, uh, you know, sorry, the vessel that I was constantly filling has suddenly gone. What do I do with it? There's nowhere for it to go. And, it, and it's, 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 it's not 
generic love. It's not something I can't just throw it over the fence and it will love something else. It was very focused on those those individuals. So, yeah, that that's that is can be a problem. And and in terms of like you were saying, okay, your question is how how do you you know how do you how do you love someone like me? Well, then I'd have to go to my my partner Charlotte, and her approach is um, very considered. So I remember her joining groups uh, of 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 of, of women who were living with autistic partners and she would communicate with them. I mean, she sat downstairs studying psychology. She is one of those people that researches things, thinks about things deeply, tries to absorb and, and, and utilize those bits which can be of value at that point in time. So although she's not a scientist and she doesn't approach things in a scientific way, she approaches them in a very clever contemplative way and I'm very fortunate that she's taken that approach to you know managing our relationship as best she can <laughs> of course every now and again I put a spanner in the works but but she's prepared for those spanners in the main I'm not saying that yeah. it's it goes you know it's always right and and most of the problems are, I think are generated by my slips you know where I get lazy and I forget and, and I do something wrong and 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 again, I'm, I'm quite harsh in that regard. You know, I've got to be harsh because there's it's just black or white. You know, so sometimes if it's if 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 you're looking for the other tone, either the black or the white, and it's not there, that can seem quite harsh to people. Yeah, it's such a privilege to talk to you, Chris. I feel like I did not expect to come into this interview and have love be such a big theme. <laughs> the, you know, the love of your dad for your mum. Charlotte's love, your love for your bird and your dogs. And it's, it's really interesting to me because in lots of ways, we're extremely different. I am, I am, I have too much gray. I can, I can, I can always see all the points of view. You know, I lean humanities. I am not detail oriented. I am people focused, not task focused. Um, like if you mapped our personality types, we probably would be opposites, but because we've been able to encounter each other at just a vulnerable, vulnerable human, curious, open, not in, not in threat, not in the differences are a problem that they mean that one of us is right and one of us is wrong, that we have to defend ourselves or we have to argue for ourselves. We've been able, you know, on a Zoom co- podcast conversation, we, you know, we're not soulmates, but you know, it has felt human and natural. What, what, and it, it, uh, what I'm building up to is, I feel like we're losing that skill. We're, we're, it's, it's easy to see difference as threat, divergence as, you know, we, we talk about neurodivergence as like difference as deficit or difference as a problem and, and hardening into our tribes, hardening into our perspectives, political or religious or whatever it is. What have you learned as you've communicated about neurodivergence, you've communicated about climate, one of those most triggering and difficult and you know, wicked problems to talk about without everyone getting very tense very quickly. What helps us keep seeing each other as fully human? Kindness, I think. I think that in order, if you, you know, I always say to people, look, we, in order to solve our problems, environmental, we've got to transition. We can't just switch off. You know, we, we, we're going to need to move in, in, in as rapidly as possible, a rapid transition, one hopes. But, you know, and not everyone is going to jump at the same time and not everyone is going to run at the same pace. So in order for that, 
um, transition to work, we need to be tolerant of one another. And, and in order to be tolerant, you've got to be patient. And in order to be patient, you've got to be kind. So the division that you've spoken of, the polarization which blights our life now, is so destructive. You know, like I said, I don't, I don't hate Donald Trump. I, I, I don't hate the, the chief execs of BP and Shell. I could sit down and I could talk to them, you know, but, but there's no point in manifesting that degree of polarization. That's not going to solve any problem whatsoever. And, and I think it comes again back to those fundamental values. You know, I, I am, a, and we should all be, I think, you know, far more tolerant than, than, than we are. And I do remember, I think that, you know, I think well, I vaguely remember, you know, m- more tolerance in the world. I mean, we've always been fighting one another over ideologies, you know, material things and, 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 and sometimes utter nonsense. And that worries me. But, you know, tolerance is, is, is really important. You know, that's why I, you know, like, I'm not, I'm not an atheist like my dad was. I don't believe in a God but that doesn't make me, I don't think, uh, an atheist. I don't, I don't need to bring people, I don't need to challenge other people's beliefs. I like the fact that they've got those beliefs. I like most of the beliefs that they have. I mean, you know, I'm, the, I, I, I'm the guy that always listens to Thought, uh, you know, thought for Today on Radio mm. 4 because I love the breadth of all of those ideas that come from different beliefs, faiths and religions. But they, do you know what? There's an enormous commonality between them all. And for me, what I like listening to it is because it's about humanity, actually. And you can break it into faith if you like. You can subdivide it. You can draw lines in the sand. You can give everyone flags and brand them and tattoo them. But basically, when those people are, are, are delivering their messages, they're, they're, they're talking about humanity. And humanity is broad and diverse. And therefore, in order to, you know, to, I suppose to basically love people, love humanity, you've got to be tolerant. And that's fundamental. We've got to be able to fight for that right to be tolerant, which is, again, you know, we're compromising the right to protest in the UK now. You know, we're tightening the laws on protesting. Um, What is that? That's a lack of tolerance. That's a lack of saying you're not entitled to publicly voice your point of view. Mm. I mean, that's just... That's not going to work. We've, we've seen this historically go in completely the wrong direction before, and it will go in the wrong direction again. So I think that one of the core strengths of religions, as I understand them, um, is that it, it's, they're centered around um, humanity and us as you know, a conscious organism and the way that we manufacture that conscience and have to exercise it and satisfy it and interact with others' consciousness. And, and that's quite a complex thing. And people have gone in different directions in order to, you know, come to their, uh, you know, their belief structure. But ultimately, I just see, you know, I don't see much difference in, in, in the messaging when you bring it, when you really distill it. And I love all that messaging. You know, it's not going to make me a religious person, but I have enormous respect for those people, again, they, who've got the courage. They've got the courage to, to put, that, that, that whole everything that means everything, their, their life's thoughts, their work, um, the, the processes that, the, that, they've, that, that they've come up with, they're prepared to lay them out in front of you for you to judge, take, reject. 
yeah. you've got to admire that. Whatever, whatever view you might have of it. Yeah. Chris Packham, I cannot express what a privilege it has been to speak to you for the sacred. Thank you. Well, what a lovely and thoughtful man. I um, I was expecting someone scrappier. I, you know, have read a lot and watched a lot of um, his output and I knew he'd never been, you know, nasty or anything other than um, decent. But that, that punk persona and that campaigning persona, and as he said, you know, someone who is quite black and white and truth-telling, didn't expect him to be so gentle. I didn't expect um, just that level of raw, raw vulnerability, which I think can't help but make you feel hugely tender um towards someone and i asked him about you know moments when his sacred values became obvious on the surface but even as i was asking i thought i don't think this is right for you i think you're one of the most kind of morally thought out morally rigorous people that i've met that this is not you know what are the deep principles you're trying to live by what is the kind of life that you're trying to live in is not a question like it is for many of us that only surfaces you know when we have the mental space or when we go away from things or when we retreat or at moments of kind of crisis and reflection, you know, big birthdays or bereavements. I think uh, for Chris, it's been front and center center from very early days, I guess, partly because he had to define himself in opposition to um, a world that wasn't hugely welcoming to him. I really loved learning about punk. It makes um, just a lot more sense to me as, as a kind of yes, rebellion and yes, questioning authority, but also the sort of homemadeness of it is really connecting up now with zine culture. We've also had Clementine Morrigan on this series. And one of the things she talks about is being a punk. And I think there is a kind of resurgence of interest in that culture of making your own things, you know, making, uh, pursuing your creativity, uh, building your own communities. Um, yeah, that can do attitude. And and learning to be comfortable with people not really understanding you or maybe even being a bit scared of you or hostile towards you. Uh, it's making me think that when I see someone who is expressing in their body um, that, that kind of alternative, those alternative choices around hair and clothes and whatever, what's, go- what's going on? You know, what's going on with them? What led them to want to be walking in the world as that, as that kind of statement? What is it that that um, style choice is helping them with. It's a lovely story about his mum and dad. The way he just speaks about them with such respect. Um, I do think, yeah, the ro- the romance of getting involved in the church of your partner, even if it's not for you and you've been a staunch and lifelong atheist, that... Um, and Chris, I think Chris, and it sounds like his sisters just respect for their mum and that that was a big change for her, but they they could see that the community was really life-giving for her. Um, again, much less hostile and spiky about religion than I was expecting. I, felt, I know he's been sort of interested, but various people sent me the thing about at the end of Desert Island Disc, he said he would use the Bible as firewood. So I sort of had that as like a thing in my mind that he he he, he might be less warm um 
that I encountered. It's very interesting. Uh, gosh, the thing that he said about when I said, you know, did your parents know that you were, and he sort of skated over a bit. He was brutally bullied. You know, did your parents know how hard it was for you? And he said, you know, my mom's family were bombed to death with her there. <laughs> that, how deep these generational divides can go. I think that may be our deepest divide. I worry about where we are with it. How hard it is for us to understand people formed by a completely different context and how our language sounds to them. The set of um, preference, the set of associations they have with some concepts um, and how important is the work of listening across those divides, of listening to those older than us and those younger than us and asking how does the world look like from where you are? What, what are you afraid of? Or what do you see the good in and you want to affirm? And not assuming that we know. I think the, I think the gulf is bigger than we know. And you could really see it in Chris's both respect and understanding of why his parents couldn't engage with his pain. But I also really wish they had. Yeah. Um... Interestingly, we didn't spend loads and loads of time talking about wildlife, partly because that's what Chris is known for and there's a lot out there. If you want to hear him talk about the beauty of the natural world and birds and pumas and bugs and all the least loved, least pretty creatures of our earth, there's many places you can go for that and I would encourage you. It's a very delightful thing to go and listen to him enthuse. Um, but I wanted to do something slightly different. So... Uh, I think what stood out for me most is just, he said he didn't expect to be content or peaceful. And that is a thing that comes up again as you get to know him a little bit, that it, it, life has been a struggle. There has been quite a lot of darkness and a lot of loneliness and a lot of trying to channel that into doing good in the world and fighting injustice where he sees it, and standing up for the planet and for autistic people, various other things. Um, so I both feel sort of sad, and something in me reacts against his kind of like, I just don't expect to be peaceful, don't expect to be content. <laughs> um, but also there's a real dignity in it, and a real um, sort of self-understanding. It seems like it's sort of a functional position to get to and yeah at the end toleration which is a word that I just struggle with as a word because it sounds quite thin to me but I'm very on board about the meaning how do we not how do we notice in ourselves when we are reacting tribally when we are feeling defensive when we're fearing, feeling attacky not because it, something's actually unjust or untrue but just because someone's different from us or has come to a different conclusion on something to us. How do we steady ourselves in that moment and just go, huh, maybe that's just okay. Um, maybe I'm not under threat because you're different from me or dress differently from me or express yourself differently from me or don't understand me or don't agree with me. And finally, I'm thinking about how do we welcome the challenges? Like, I imagine that for a a long time, Chris was really difficult to work with. Like someone who has extremely high standards, extremely strong work ethic, um, massively hard on himself, uh, 
And as his mother said, you know, the world's least tactful child. That, you know, Catherine May said, all autistic people have a history of social rejection. And I know, as I said, I'm very different from Chris. My personality does sometimes find people who that's their style quite abrasive and quite uncomfortable to be around. But Chris is making me realise what a gift they are. What a gift. What a beautiful and powerful approach to life that we need as well as my more, you know, grey, grey zones and wishy-washy, ameliorative, uh, diplomatic approach. Yeah. What privilege. I love that. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of The Sacred. My name is Elizabeth Oldfield and you've heard an interview with Chris Packham. Our production team are Daniel Turner and Fiona Hanscom and our music is by Luke Stanley with vocals by Lizzie Harvey. The Sacred is a project of the think tank Theos. Please come and check out all the rest of Theos' work. And I love being in conversation with you. You can find me on social media. I have a website. I have a Substack. Uh, myself and the team value so much how many different perspectives you come from. And uh, some of you absolutely love one guest. Some of you find another guest really difficult. And that just pleases my heart. So be in touch, express your opinions, connect with us. And as always, it massively, massively helps other people find the podcast if you uh, review it, tweet it, uh, share it on Instagram, send it to your friends. Uh, Basically, just give a little bit of a uh, blow it out into the world. We would be so grateful. Until next time, this has been The Sacred Podcast.